Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we're continuing the story of the Civil War in California. Let's get into it. Having successfully pushed the Confederate forces back, Carlton immediately set to work in establishing structures and procedures to deal with the chaos of this particular region in the United States. The United States Congress had officially dubbed the area as the Arizona Territory. The first thing Carlton did was to put the Arizona Territory under martial law. In addition, he established a series of litmus tests to determine who could be trusted along with a number of taxes on local businesses, including bars and casinos, to help pay for security. He put these structures in place in order to prepare for his troops to depart to chase the Confederate soldiers the 270 miles across the desert into Texas. Now let's talk about this expedition. The journey would be made in the middle of July with supplies and water being an uncertainty. Where there was water, there was also sure to be conflict, in the same way that watering holes in the savannah are some of the most dangerous places, watering holes in the desert during the Civil War were places where conflict most typically happened. One day, for example, Carlton sent troops, including a number of forces, and scouts to a water source in the Apache Pass, and his troops were ambushed by hundreds of Apache forces. The pass bisects two major mountainous regions, making it a perfect terrain for an ambush. In typical situations like this, retreat would have been the appropriate solution to the presence of an overwhelming indigenous force. The environment forced their hand, though, as they needed the water to survive. The commander of this group of forces and scouts, Captain Roberts, pushed back towards the spring. In terms of defensive structures, the Apache had the higher ground as well as a series of breastworks. The term breastwork is a kind of old world term that refers to fortifications that are more temporary, unlike a wall or a parapet, and are usually made of earth or dirt. The word breast refers to the height of the structure being about chest height. Typically in a battle, the layout and fortifications dictate the outcome. However, sometimes other factors or variables can supersede something like a fortification. Those typically are technology. The US military by this point had the use of howitzers or cannons. The howitzers used during the Civil War were actually also used during the Mexican-American War, becoming available in the early to mid 19th century. And there were specific models developed for fighting in mountainous regions where this particular battle took place. The mountainous version of the howitzer was lighter and more portable, which enabled artillery crews to move and reposition the guns more easily and efficiently. This particular version of the howitzer first started being manufactured in the late 1830s 
and was quickly employed in Western expeditions. The impact of being struck by a howitzer shell could be devastating. Explosive shells were often used, which beyond the initial explosive blast would send shrapnel flying in all directions. And the denser the concentration of opposing troops, the more devastating the impact, not only physically, but also psychologically for those who are hit by these shells or the corresponding shrapnel. In the Apache Pass, the Union forces targeted their cannons directly at the breastworks of the Apache and were able to disband them fairly quickly once they were in range. The men with Captain Roberts perhaps saw this as a stepping stone to reach their final enemy, which was the Confederates. Perhaps they saw the native people as just a nuisance to be overcome in their pursuit of their larger goal. This would turn out to be incorrect. These Californians would spend most of the war fighting with indigenous people in the Southwest. We tend to place blanket narratives over war. Part of this is like we like simple narratives where there are clear reasons for why we're fighting. Freedom, the spread of democracy, the end of slavery, etc., etc. In reality, there are often many reasons why fighting happens. And moreover, some people are drawn into war for reasons alien to the major combatants in that conflict. The fog of war, that famous phrase, goes beyond just the individual's experience of war, but also extends to how we understand how and why larger fighters and actors are participating in these conflicts. The fighting that would occur would be in the small-scale form. These battles would be referred to in the literature and historiography as skirmishes to separate them out from larger engagements in the East, which we discussed at length in the podcast with Glenna Matthews. But they were also referred to this way as to place them in a form of hierarchy important to historians and experts on the Civil War. However we choose to refer to these small battles, even the most microscopic engagement was often just as deadly as some of the battles in the East that featured larger numbers of forces with larger numbers of casualties. The Apache were experienced warriors, likely far more experienced than the soldiers from the Union forces they would engage with. Also, many of these native warriors were using similar weapons to the white soldiers, including rifles and six-shooters, but they had a decided advantage when it came to transportation. They were superior horsemen. They also had a superior understanding of the terrain, having inhabited the area for potentially hundreds of years and spent most of their lifetimes fighting in this landscape. Some of these Californian soldiers would describe native people literally popping out of the sand. In my mind, when I have read some of these descriptions, I picture the opening scene in the newest adaptation of Dune, where the Furmen attack the Harkonnen emerging directly from the sand. I'm sure it was equally terrifying as the movie depicted those types of engagements. By controlling this area in the southwest, the Union forces effectively closed the door to Confederate expansion in the area and the eventual expansion to California. 
With the Union troops reaching the Rio Grande, the Confederate forces had no choice but to head back towards San Antonio. In addition to the Apache operating in the Southwest, the Comanche were also a major force. Again, this hurt the Confederates' ability to expand into the Southwest. They wrongly believed that they could control the Comanche's targets, hoping that the Comanche would focus their attention on Union supply lines. Not ones to be directed, the Comanche indiscriminately targeted whoever had what they wanted at the moment. Meanwhile, the Apache continued targeting farmers, miners, and really anyone that was in their path who, again, had something that they wanted. Carleton took over the management of this region and set to work trying to bring order to that disorder, as we referenced at the beginning. To do that meant to understand the complex tribal landscape of the Comanche, the Navajo, the Ute, and the Apache tribes, as well as the presence, because again, this is a transnational region, of Mexican people in this area. And this is an important time to revisit one of the key ideas that comes up again and again in this podcast, which is that lines and maps are assertions and declarations, not descriptions of reality. The truth is simply that this area was a place of flux. It had no center, but was a land of change. That makes it difficult to understand and draw casual or causal references or conclusions about who was in charge. Rather, I like to view this particular area and the conflicts that happened within its bounds as a series of interactions and negotiations of power and influence between highly contingent actors, which is just a jargonized way of saying that we need to view things in the microcosm and avoid drawing broad conclusions about the region. In the aggregate, we might be able to draw some conclusions, like that this land was mostly indigenous control, or that the Union believed they had more control than they actually did. But beyond those cautious claims, I don't believe we can say a lot more that would definitively attempt to summarize this complicated context. But let's get back to the story. In trying to pacify the region, Carleton had some strengths and weaknesses. His strengths were his volunteers, who were well-trained and now had experience fighting these particular environmental conditions. However, given that the center of gravity of the Civil War was in the East, Carleton was regularly losing some of his most effective officers and soldiers to the war in the East, which was tantamount to a total and absolute meat grinder, and the Eastern Theater was always in desperate need of quality reinforcements. In addition, supply chains continued to be a challenging issue for Carleton. The raiding parties of the Comanche were a persistent problem. While efforts were made to establish new trading partners, some in Mexico and other places, for the most part, supply chains would continue to break affecting the ability of soldiers to operate in this vast desert. Often the circumstances in which fighting occurs matters more than the quality of the troops fighting in those environments. The quality of a leader, though, is determined in these exact circumstances where things seem dire. 
And more than that, at almost a granular level, it's about the ability to make a quick decision to triage when needed. The term triage comes from the French, which means to sort. The history of triage goes back a long way, whenever decisions were needed to be made on the battlefield. But it came into its modern understanding and usage with Baron Dominique Jean Larray, the chief surgeon in Napoleon Army. At its core, it's about determining who needs what kind of care and when. Focusing your attention on those you can save presents challenges, obviously, as many of us moderns now take for granted, or at least we should take for granted, that every life is inherently valuable. This was not the case back then. In the context of scarcity, these ideas that you want to protect everyone change. Particularly in situations of mass casualties, there will never be enough medical supplies to go around. To say that everyone will get the same quality of medical care is an opiate served to the masses by politicians to prevent us from facing the reality that some people will not get what they need. Essentially, it's a utilitarian approach to make tough decisions. Carlton was in a situation in which he needed to use the mental model of triage. He needed to determine how to act in a situation of scarcity, both when it came to troops but also supplies, and where to focus his attention and his military power to get the most so to secure this particularly convoluted and complex region. The first thing that he did was to reoccupy strategic forts that had been abandoned. Fortifications were necessary as open field conflict with adept indigenous forces would be challenging if not impossible. And then he set to work on the major task, in the sense that triage where you focus your attention on the most strategic lever, and his solution to the problem of Native Americans raiding and dismantling white power in New Mexico was the concentration of indigenous people in a single location. We know this today as the word reservation. He wanted to concentrate Native Americans in one spot in the Southwest to prevent their mobility, which was the tool that they used to not only evade, but attack white forces. And this idea emerged from a very famous Californian named General Edward Beale, or Ned. Edward Beale is one of those mythic people who seem to live a hundred lives and move freely amongst the most famous people in Western history. He was born in Washington, D.C. to influential parents from prominent families. Beale's father was the paymaster in the Navy, and so Beale followed his example into the Navy as well, and served in a squadron under Robert F. Stockton, who we met during our episodes on the conquering of California. Beale served as a kind of spy or reconnaissance officer in England, where he gathered information as to whether the British were aiming to colonize the West Coast. After reporting his findings to the president himself, Beale was dispatched back to the West to accompany Stockton in the conquering of California. Beale played a large role in the land campaign, particularly during the Mexican-American War. He also served as Kit Carson's defense attorney during the famous Pathfinder court cases that we covered in a previous episode. 
Among his many amazing achievements and accomplishments, Beale additionally made several trips across the United States, back and forth. And on one of these missions, he was the first one to bring proof that there was in fact gold in California and initiating a worldwide gold rush. Additionally, Beale played a major role in surveying for the government and for future railroad systems. None of these accomplishments, which could each warrant a podcast themselves, is the relevant detail for this show. Rather, it was the activities with Native Americans that Carleton would utilize in how he approached dealing with indigenous power in the West. Many of us have driven through Tahone Ranch, either leaving Los Angeles or coming to it. But many of us do not know the history here. The ranch was actually used as a reservation for Native Americans from 1854 to 1864. After that period, Beale actually would purchase the land for himself, which is its own interesting story associated. However, going back, during those 10 years, the land was used to keep indigenous people away from white settlements, which nearly always resulted in conflict. While many were keen on eliminating indigenous people in California, Beale controversially wanted to segregate indigenous people until they learned the white ways of agriculture and, more broadly, white culture. Obviously, we can identify the racist underpinning of this approach, but during the time, this would have been perceived as a more progressive plan to deal with Native Americans relative to the extreme nature of other views and policies. He sought to create this holding site at Tejone Ranch and worked at this plan for years before funding and support eventually fell through. Carleton was present during this project and bore witness to some of his successes and failures and ultimately saw it as a model for his campaign in the Southwest. While the situations had differences, the basic problem was the same. How do we keep indigenous people away from white people? Carleton thought he'd found his solution. Next time, we will see how it turned out. We'll see you then.